Welcome to the Memorial Sermon Podcast. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your walk with God and drive you closer to Jesus. For more information about our church, visit our website, nbcmetairie.org. Now here's this week's message. Uh, so we, we've been going through it. We've been looking at, uh, right now in this kind of section, we've been looking at Paul's second missionary journey and, and kind of how he's been going from Antioch to Derby to Lister to Iconium, Antioch. And he gets uh, a vision uh, of a Macedonian man. And so this is Paul seeing his time, it's time we take the gospel to Europe, all right? And so after that, they, they kind of load up on a boat, they cross, and they, you know, they bounce to Neapolis and to Philippi. And that's kind of where we were the last two weeks, talking about Philippi. And, you know, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are all together, all right? Luke, the guy, you know, Dr. Luke, who wrote the, the gospel, um, they run into issues at Philippi, right? You know, there's not really much of a Jewish community there, but they do, uh, they find some, some Jewish people there, some Gentiles. Uh, they preach the word. They, uh, you know, people are believing. They run into issues when they have the girl that does the fortune telling. Uh, you know, they heal her. They cast out the, the demon, or Paul does. We have disruption. The, the owners of this uh, slave girl were not very happy. Um, and so basically, you know, Paul and Silas, they get beaten. They get jailed, all right? Uh, you know, they, they were able to get released because it becomes known later by the authorities that they're Roman citizens. And so that was kind of what they did to them was against the law. But uh, so that's where, where we're at. And so Paul and Silas um, and also Timothy leave Philippi, right? We can kind of gather from the way that Luke is writing Acts that he stops using the term we. So we, we assume maybe he, sta- he stayed behind in Philippi, right? Probably stayed there. Um, to minister to the church there. And uh, <clears throat> once we get, once we get, uh, now we're going we're gonna to look at where we are right now. So um, if we go ahead and just read uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll go back and just kind of dive in to it verse by verse. So, <clears throat> Now when, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and was, as was his custom, and on the Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city into an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowds. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, um, Thessalonica, uh, you know, we, we see that in verse 1, um, if you, can you show me the, uh, the kind of zoomed in map? Um, yeah, so thank you. Um, so now, they, in verse 1, we see they had passed through and Philippus and Apollonia. So as um, they're leaving Philippi, they stop over in two other towns. Um, we'll see that uh, one of them is about, so Apollonia was about 30 miles from Philippi, and then, excuse me, 
Amphipolis was about 30 miles from Philippi, and then Apollonia was about another 30 miles, um, and then Thessalonica, another 40 miles. So they bounced through these couple of towns. They probably didn't stop. Um, there's only a mention of a synagogue in Thessalonica, so we can probably gather that either one of these two towns had a synagogue. So um, when Paul shows up to uh, Thessalonica, a few things to know about it. Um, Thessalonica was uh, a large city in Macedonia, Macedonia's northern part of Greece, or modern-day Greece. Um, I think it was like the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was, had a very important or very large port there. It, had, it was on a, situated on a very important trade route. Okay, um, had a, a population around 200,000 or 200,000 plus people. Um, so it was it was definitely not the backwater of the day of the day. So it was a very a very it was a large city, an influential city. It was the capital of this of Macedonia. So it was very important. It had a lot of strategic importance for for travel going east and west, or if you wanted to go over to Asia, or you wanted to go north and south. So it was kind of at a crossroads. Um, and so we'll see later how this could be a very important place to plant a church. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, Paul coming in, um, we see that, you know, he comes into Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, all right? So in Philippi, Peter, uh, Paul didn't have a chance to go into synagogue because there wasn't one there, but he has, this is normally his, his MO here, He's, he goes to the town, he looks for the synagogue, and that's the first place he goes, all right? And mind you, him and Silas had just been beaten maybe a couple days before, so there's nothing slowing him down. Um, so we can see also that uh, when he goes into the synagogue uh, of the Jews, um, Paul already has an expectation that there can be conflict, all right? Uh, he's, this has happened before. Um, I, I believe it was in Lystra. He went into a synagogue and started proclaiming the gospel, and uh, they stoned him and left him for dead. Okay, so, the, so he, he, he definitely knows there's a, the potential, all right, for conflict, and we see that he, he has bravery and courage going into it. Why do you think Paul would have started in the synagogue? Right? This is always something we see, you know, like, hey, why does he go there first? Why is this his custom? Um, why did he start there? Even knowing that he's, he's going to run into some conflict. He starts preaching in the synagogues first. There's a few reasons why. Um, one, Paul being uh, Jewish, he has access to the synagogue. All right? And I love thinking about this like this way. Like, he, he comes into a town. And they're like, oh, you know, we got uh, this Jewish guy who's coming through town. Why don't we let him give him an audience at the synagogue? He can come up and teach us, having no idea what he's about to bring up. So, uh, you know, he gets invited into the synagogues. He can go in and teach. Sometimes they let him teach more at some synagogues, and sometimes it, ought, it stirs them up right away. Um, so he comes in there. So one, he, he, as being a Jew, he has access to synagogues. All right. Um, if he went first to the Gentiles in a town, it's not likely they'd ever give him an audience in the synagogue, which kind of makes sense. All right. So if he comes into a town and he goes and he starts proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles first, they're not going to let him in the synagogue to teach. All right. Um, Jews already have the foundation of the gospel. They have the Old Testament. All right. So the Old Testament lays out all these expectations. They lay out you know, the living God, the one true God. And we have, you know, they believe in all the Old Testament scriptures. And you have uh, the case where they even have an expectation of a Messiah. And we'll see that their expectations are often way off from what Jesus, who Jesus actually is. But they already have that foundation. Whereas going directly to the Gentiles, they're normally practicing idolatry. You have to start at square one, all right? And we'll see, if you see that later on in, in, uh, in Acts and, and towards the end of 17 when Paul is at uh, Mars Hill. So they, they already have a foundation for the gospel, right? If Paul starts with the Jewish believers, we can see that, you know, or starts with the Jews, and they believe, they can also, in turn, they already know the Scriptures, they can be a light to the Gentiles, 
All right. And we see also that, uh, you know, Paul has a, a real passion for his brethren. He has that eternal perspective. He writes in Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the, gen- uh, this, he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. All right, so that's kind of, he's kind of setting where he goes. He goes first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. Um, but he normally would only move on to the Greeks after he'd already been rejected by the, the Jews, all right? Uh, Paul also writes in Romans 9, 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And this is always something that really cut deep to Paul was the fact that his Jewish brothers, his, his people, all right, that they, you know, even though they had the Old Testament, they had the foundation for the gospel, they didn't have the, the gospel. They didn't know Christ yet. And so he's wishing, you know, he, could, he would do anything if he could get um, his, his people to believe and follow Christ. So another thing, when Paul going to the, uh, the synagogues, all right, as I already mentioned, he's multiple times he's faced persecution. He's faced attack from going into a synagogue. We can see that this does not phase him at all. Right? He just got a beating and he's, he's going for another one. All right? Or at least he, he's on the, on the track. So their reactions at the synagogue should come as no surprise to Paul, and they don't. So uh, like I mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 14 in Lystra, they stoned uh, they stoned. Uh, Paul, all right, thought he was dead, left him out there. Um, in Iconium, he also, uh, he fled from a stoning. <laughs> um, and then later on in Acts, you're going to find in Corinth, he's going to really stir up trouble too. All right, so wherever Paul goes, he seems to have trouble following him, right? And it's not, and I want to get into this later, but it's, you know, Paul, the message he's bringing is causing the, disre- uh, the unrest is so-called, as we saw the, the Jews call it, turning the world upside down. It's not necessarily that Paul's like, you know, being a big meanie or having his, uh, being offensive to people, but we'll see that the gospel can be offensive to people. It's his message that's offending, it's not him, all right? So, uh, moving on, verse 2. And Paul went in, and as was the custom in the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, all right? Reasoned. Um, so, this is where we get into Paul's approach on how to teach uh, the Jews, all right? So he's, he's working off this foundation of where they are already with uh, an expectation of a Messiah and uh, a understanding of the Old Testament, all right? So he's going to go through in reason, and um, this word reason here comes from a Greek word, dialogomia. All right, this is where we get our English word dialogue, all right? And it gives us the idea that Paul is not just coming up there, speaking a word, and then getting back down, all right? He is able to go through the scriptures, all right? And he is have, he's open to questions, all right? This is kind of a two-way thing. So he's not only is he bringing up scriptures, not only is he, is he proclaiming the gospel, in turn, he's able to field questions uh, from the Jews there and say, okay, I can answer that. I can, I, can, uh, I can deal with that. And so here we get the example that when we go and we take the gospel, we must be able to answer questions, all right? I can't, can't just get up there, say a little bit, and then just walk off, all right? Um, the gospel is reasonable, all right? It can be reasoned. It can be, uh, it does make sense, all right? In, in the sense that um, it holds up under the scrutiny of reason, right? And so, Paul, of course, unable to do this, he has to be very familiar with the scriptures. Um, and as believers, if we want to impact the world, if we want to see uh, people come to Christ, if uh, we need to be able to not only know the gospel and proclaim it, but as part of any effective. Um, evangelism, be able to answer questions, right? And of course, as Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Again, with gentleness and respect, okay? So, um, you know, we, we've got to be able to be able to stand up for the gospel and answer questions, all right? Be able to defend it with gentleness and respect, okay? So you don't just, you know, insult somebody or whatever. Um, so we look at what was the source of Paul's reasoning, right? Um, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, okay? So we can see that he wasn't relying on human wisdom, he wasn't relying on uh, extra-biblical writings or traditions, all right? This was a common thing uh, in Judaism at the day. They would oftentimes have kind of these non-biblical writings or traditions or teachings of different rabbis and stuff like that that they would kind of appear, adhere to, all right? So he's not using any of that. He's going to uh, straight to the, to the biblical writings, all right? When we talk about scriptures in the New Testament— we're talking about the Old Testament, right? Because we don't really, at this time, they don't really have uh, a New Testament put together, all right? So Paul is using all Old Testament writings. He's starting with that as the foundation, all right? So that's where he's, he's coming from. Um, of course, Paul was, as he calls himself, the Pharisee of Pharisees, so he was very familiar with Old Testament. Um, but that's what he's using, all right? And we see here in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, right? So here's where we get into um, what, what Paul's actually doing. He's, he's taking this message, right, and he's, he's looking at the Old Testament, and he's providing proofs, okay? It's like, he's not just getting up there and saying, hey, this is what happened. He's, he's giving examples from the Old Testament, which they believe in, okay? So that's where they're starting with the, with the foundation. He's able to take uh, different Old Testament passages, all right, and explain how Jesus is the Messiah, okay? And, and, and what we have here is kind of an ex, um, expository preaching, all right? He's looking at Scripture, and he's using that, Right, and then he's he's laying it out proof by proof, right? Um, so one of the the hangups here uh, with the Jewish community, um, we've already talked about. They had an expectation of Messiah, right? What is this? Messiah means anointed one, okay? And so they have in in Greek it's Christ, right? So this the they have these expectations, um, and there's Old Testament prophecies. But a lot of their expectations about the Messiah, and we see this also in Jesus' ministry, they're expecting uh, a earthly ruler to show up, a king, a military leader, who's going to reestablish a kingdom, all right? And Jesus will, you know, establish a kingdom like that in his second coming. So in the Old Testament, you have different prophecies about his first coming, his second coming, and sometimes they, they just kind of get mixed together, they don't understand that, you know, kind of the full idea of it, all right? We see that Jesus had to deal with this expectation as, or deal with this as well. Um, so, like, for example, and um, some of Jesus' disciples didn't really even fully get this. Um, so, example, Matthew 16, 21 through 22, uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be rise, raised. And Peter looked at him, uh, took him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Okay? So Jesus is just plainly telling them, like, this is what's going to happen. And they're like, No, 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 no. This, this can't be it. Um, so he dealt with it that, that way. Uh, also, you have uh, Jesus after his resurrection. You have the two believers or two disciples on their way to Emmaus. All right. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him. And, you know, they're all like bummed out. We don't understand what happened. We thought Jesus was the Messiah, but they killed him. But, you know, what's going on? 
And then what happens? Jesus had to go through the scriptures, starting with Moses and the prophets, and explain to them everything that happened. This is all how it was supposed to happen. This is all how it was foretold, right? It's all how it was prophesied. So he sets, this, he sets them straight, like, look, this is, this is how it's supposed to be, all right? So we know that it was very difficult for the Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah because of their expectations they had. And Paul writes uh, this in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. All right? So this idea, he's even pointed out there, you know, it just, they just trip over it. They can't deal with it. Um, you know, Christ the Messiah, or Jesus being the Messiah, it just doesn't make sense to them because he was executed. He was killed. He was... You know, he didn't meet their expectations, all right? And then he, had, he rose again. So Paul is able to take the Old Testament and show them, no, this, is, this Jesus is the Messiah. It was already foretold that Jesus would suffer, all right, that he would die, and then he would rise again. And, you know, it, there's a, numerous uh, scriptures to deal with this, um, but... I want to take a look at just a few of those that, uh, that he could have used um, or that he likely did use. Um, and if you want to get look at, again, of example, in this particular case, we don't really see the, the details of the case he laid out. We can look back at, at uh, Acts chapter 2 when you have Peter at Pentecost preaching to a Jewish crowd. They're all there uh, for Pentecost. They're, you know, they got Jews from all around the world, and he's able to lay out the gospel, and he's able to pull back on some of these same scriptures and point to Jesus being the Messiah. And then also in Acts chapter 13, you have uh, Paul in a synagogue, and this is the time when he actually does kind of lay out some of his scriptural references. So, um, all right, one of these references, uh, that one of these passages could be Psalm 22, where Jesus... Uh, which describes crucifixion. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Um, it talks about being stretched out, being pierced. Um, you know, his bones were laid bare. All right, Jesus on the cross was like, you know, they're stripped down naked. All right, this is the idea of these are, this is describing crucifixion. Um, and then Jesus also quotes from Psalm 22 when he's on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right. Uh, one of my favorites, Isaiah 53, talks of the suffering servant. Um, it brings up uh, this, justifying us through sin, offering, all right? So in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, all right? Uh, and, and then verse 12 of 53, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors but he bore our, the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here we have this idea in, in Isaiah 53. Not only is it talking about you know, the crucifixion, but also that Jesus, uh, what's happening is actually an atonement, a sacrifice made in our said. It's kind of laying out this in the Old Testament even, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, and then we also, you have uh, passages like Psalm 16. Uh, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So this is, again, Paul, uh, David, and of course this is used earlier, like in Acts chapter 2. What happened? David died. David was buried in a tomb, right? This could be, you know, kind of David speaking forward to Jesus, all right? Jesus was killed, he was buried, um, but he rose, okay? He didn't stay in the grave, right? Uh, there's also the sacrificial system that was given, right, uh, in Exodus, Leviticus. And we have these things called types, all right? They're images of things that will later happen, all right? You have uh, the Passover lamb, all right, in the Passover. What happens? They take a lamb, a spotless lamb, you know, let's say you're old, without blemish, all right? 
uh, that's sacrificed, all right, the blood's, you know, covered, all right, to pass to the judgment or the angel of death doesn't come, all right? Also with Passover, what happens? The lamb cannot be left overnight, all right? So Jesus was not left overnight on the cross, all right? He was taken down, uh, whatever. What else? You can't break a Passover lamb's bones, all right? None of Jesus' bones are breaking. When they break the legs of the others being crucified, all right? They don't break Jesus' legs. He was already dead, and they, of course, they stabbed him with a spear as well. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard, pull out the beard. I hid my face from disgrace and spitting. All right, so here we go. Jesus being mocked by the Romans. He gets smacked around on the head. He gets uh, his beard pulled out. All right, he gets spit on. All right, these are these ideas that that totally go against the expectations that the, the Jews had of a Messiah. But it was always, it was always going to be this way. It was always foretold. And, and, you know, there are some, conservatively, some 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus and his earthly ministry. All right, some people put that number higher, some people, you know, but conservatively, 300. All right, just the ones I mentioned here are just ones dealing specifically with, um, you know, crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, there's all kinds of prophecies about Jesus' genealogy, you know, from being, you know, descendant of David, being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, all right, uh, being in Galilee, all right, in Nazareth, Um you know, even even though, you know, it's always like the type of Jesus, even when he enters into Jerusalem on the back of the, you know, the colt donkey or whatever, right? So even that is, is told about. Um, so Paul is able to use the Old Testament prophecies to prove it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to die and be resurrected. And like going through this passage, like I'm like, wow, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to, to pull on New Testament Scripture, but when you're only looking at Old Testament, it's all there too, all right? And, you know, there, I think so many times we see today where in the church, we can have people that are like, eh, you know, we should unhitch from the Old Testament, all right? The gospel makes sense because of the Old Testament, all right? And so you can't abandon that and just be like, you know, it really lays the foundation or understanding of, of who God is, what sin is, his justice, and then how it's all his story laid out, planned out. This is what's going to happen, all right? So, uh, <clears throat> and like I said, again, these are just a few examples. And we can see here that when we... When we want to reach the world, we want to be able to turn the world upside down with the gospel. We must have a knowledge of the scriptures, right? We, not, we must be able to, to go to the scriptures, to point out different things, all right? And, and of course, in today's world, all right, uh, the very notion of the Bible or scriptures being accurate is under attack. So we must be able to, one, understand the scriptures and know how, I, I believe, how to defend them. Because I, I hear a lot of claims, you know, about, you know, well, they changed it over time and all this kind of stuff. It's like, nah, well, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, all right. And just not to get into a side for that, but it is important to be able to know the Bible because, one, we, what do we know about it? All right. It's, it's God's word. All right. It's true. All right, um, sharper than any two-edged sword. All right, this is the sword of the Spirit. All right, I like thinking about it this way, and I've, I've heard it said this way. It's like, if, if we look, look at, in Ephesians chapter 6, we look at the armor of God. All right, what do we, what do we have? The only offensive thing is the, uh, you know, the word of the Spirit. And it's like, do you want to be equipped with a little Swiss army knife? <laughs> or do you want a serious sword? So even, even on me, this is quite a conviction, you know, like we have to be able to know the Scriptures. All right, and um, and be able to lay out our case through them. All right. <clears throat> so uh, on to verse four. All right. Um, or before I go there, let's see. At 
as so we're, we're, as Peter, uh, excuse me, as Paul is laying out his case, all right, we see it now in, in verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few leading women. Some of them were persuaded, and, and kind of the Greek word used here is the idea. It's a it's a passive word that. You know, you have these Jews, and they weren't necessarily looking for the truth, all right? And you can, well, you can later on in Acts, you can contrast this with uh, the Jews in Berea, who kind of took a different approach. They weren't necessarily looking for the truth, but they were led into it, all right? So, doing evangelism, you'll, you'll run into people, they're just living their life, doing their thing, they're not really out there seeking any sort of truth, they're not out there, you know thinking about eternal things. They're just kind of one day at a time, living their life. Either they're comfortable in their sin, they're comfortable where they are. But then what happens? Somebody shows up and presents the gospel, and they're able to, you know, you grab their attention and lead them to this truth, all right? We can see that belief and being saved, part of this is, you know, we see this from Paul's approach is also uh, a, a somewhat ration. Somebody has to know the truth before they can believe it. So he's able to present the gospel truthfully and accurately. Um, I think in today's world, we can see that there's a big assault on the gospel and, and, and preaching a gospel that is not the true gospel, or maybe a, a social gospel or a feel-good gospel and a gospel that doesn't deal with sin isn't really a gospel, all right? And so um, we see that he's presenting the true gospel here. And that when, when they're persuaded, it's just, it gives me this great idea that, you know, maybe they weren't, at first they weren't really, yeah, yeah, I don't know about this. But then after Paul lays down his truth, all right, from Scripture, they start to get it. All right, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, yeah, that does make sense, all right? And so some of the Jews, they were persuaded, and they did believe, all right? And then, uh, so besides the, the Jews that were in the synagogue, all right, and they started to follow Paul and, Silas, Paul and Silas, a great many of the devout Greeks, all right? So who are these devout Greeks? Okay, um, so this would be Greeks who were in the synagogue, Greeks who... Um, have abandoned idolatry, okay? So normally that would be kind of the default Greek religion would be, you know, idolatry, you know, the whole pantheon of gods and stuff like that. So they're already in the synagogue and they're already versed in the Old Testament or you could call them proselytes, all right? So not only that, the Greeks believed, all right, great in any of them, and not a few leading women. So a lot of influential women in Thessalonica became believers, right? And so when when Paul writes about this, and one of the great things about this little section right here is we also have the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians to draw on to know more about the situation and more of how it went went down. And so in First Thessalonians one five, Paul writes uh, to the church there, because uh, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Here's another important thing. Even though Paul was probably able to lay, lay out an amazing proof or defense for the gospel, it was the Holy Spirit that works in somebody's heart for them to believe. All right, and, I, and it doesn't... It, so I don't want everybody, anybody to think that, you know, if you just get the best arguments or the best defenses or the most knowledge, then you could lead anyone to Christ. Obviously, it is the, the work. Anytime anyone comes to the Lord, it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of sin, the understanding that they must trust in the Lord. They must rely on the Lord. They can't do it by themselves. Their own righteousness doesn't mean anything. And so... It's the work of the Holy Spirit there, along with the message that Paul is bringing that, that leads people to the Lord. Um, the, the, Holy, the working of the Holy Spirit is always required for somebody to come to the Lord. And, and Jesus references this, all right, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, so this idea that anytime anyone comes to the Lord, it is a, because of the working of God, all right? And so even though Jesus, the God has set forth this model of building his church, building his kingdom, with the working, with us proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth, it's, all, it's God's work along with us. It's God doing the drawing them to us. It's God equipping us with the Spirit. It's God giving us the ability um, to communicate in His power. And so we, we see as a result of this, people are getting saved, all right? People are believing. The Greeks are believing. There's some of the Jews believing. There's a lot of influential women that believe. And, um, and Paul, again, writing about, from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as, uh, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Okay, So here we go. It's, it's God's work that's bringing them to him. All right. Um, <clears throat> These, uh, you know, leading women were probably influential women, people that are wealthy, maybe their husband, or, you know, they have businesses or something like that. We saw in Philippi, we know about Lydia. She was definitely a prominent, you know, rich lady or whatever. But um, so we have these people, they come to believe, all right? If we look at verse 5, but the Jews were jealous in taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. All right, so um, people start getting saved. People at the synagogue are believing, um, and that didn't make everyone happy, okay? So these Jews, they, they don't believe, right? They, even though Paul laid out a case, all right, they just don't want to accept it, right? And we could see this a lot, same kind of thing with the Pharisees Jesus was dealing with. Um, they had their own expectations of what a Messiah was. They had their own expectations that they were saved by their racial identity or by their good works or through their knowledge of the Scripture. And this idea that, uh, you know, basically they're not good enough, all right, or that, you know, that's offensive to them. They don't, they don't buy it. Um, also a big thing for them was this whole idea of that salvation was open to both the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? We kind of covered this some back in Acts chapter 15. There was a lot, they didn't like that. They didn't like that idea, all right? Um, so in this whole inclusion of Gentiles, no, they didn't care for it. Um, so that's another thing that kind of, uh, that they a lot of times ran into as far as objecting. But they're also, uh, they're jealous, they're upset because Paul is coming in here and he is winning over their congregation, all right? So you have these Jews, these Greeks, and these influential women who are now, you know, leaving the synagogue and they're following Paul and Silas, all right? Maybe these influential women give a lot of money to the synagogue. I don't know, but they're very upset, all right? And so it says they go to, uh, and of course, this is no surprise to Paul and Silas, all right? He's already dealt with this before. He is not deterred by the threat of violence, all right, or unrest. Um, so he's, he's always going to these synagogues expecting this to happen, all right. And so um, they, they get a mob together, all right. And um, they, the, this word in Greek is like a, like a Greek, they're, they're like marketplace loafers. There's these guys just sitting around in the marketplace, nothing to do, just waiting for the next thing to happen, and, you know, they get them all stirred up <laughs> into a mob. And, you know, there's this pattern in Acts. It's like everywhere Paul goes, there's just like some little disturbance that happens. All right, sometimes more than others. Either Sometimes they don't, you know, they get a, a, a kind of a crowd together, and he goes before the government, and they're like, this is a religious thing. We don't care. Get out of here. But then sometimes it's, it gets them together enough where there is going to see some sort of action or he's going to get chased out of town. And so, uh, you know, the Jews, you know, they're, they're not happy. They're looking for Paul and Silas, all right, but they can't find them. So they go to, they go to uh, Jason's house. Jason, is, this is like a, a, a Jewish name. It's pretty common in, in kind of the Greece area or whatever. 
And, um, you know, so they can't find Paul and in, in, um, Silas or Timothy, which they may have known they were coming for him already. I mean, they, you know, it's to be expected. And so they, they go to this house uh, and they get Jason, right? And uh, they bring him out to the crowd, all right? So this is not looking good for Jason, right? But uh, <clears throat> in verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. All right? So they take Jason, they take a few people they found with him, all right, and they, they drag him back before the city council. And one of the things that is different with Thessalonica, it's a free city. They have their own kind of elected city government there. And so, the, the, you know, they can't find Paul and Silas, so they, they grab these guys instead, right? In all likelihood, uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they were all staying there. They were staying at Jason's home, right? That's why they went there to look for him. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, they, they grab him, they, they drag him before the city council, all right? And they're going to make these charges, all right? They, they turn the world upside down, all right? They are not using this term in a positive way, <laughs> okay? Uh, they're basically charging them with uh, revolution, okay? And, and really, the term, turn the world upside down, is kind of, think of it this way. The world is already upside down, and they're turning it right side up, all right? There's, there's no, I mean, everybody, I mean, it's pretty obvious that our world is following. We know from the fall that, Things are not right in this world. Man in his own way kind of goes and does his own thing. He neglects God, doesn't care about God, is comfortable in their sin. And here you have Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, Paul uh, and Silas preaching a message that changes people's lives. They're coming into the kingdom of God. They're a new creation in Christ. Their old ways are gone, all right? They're, they're, they're just totally transformed, all right? They're upsetting uh, the expectations of what the, the Jewish uh, leaders had there. And it's really disrupting. And you'll see in some other places in Acts where the guys who are making the little idols and stuff like that get all up in an uproar because where's my business going? All these people are, you know, they're, they're abandoning their idolatry. And so they're putting forth this charge, all right, and if the Jews did uh, catch anything, they did catch that, uh, we'll read here in chapter 7, that they were proclaiming Jesus as king. And so in verse 7, and Jason, uh, and this is the, the charges to put in here, and Jason had received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. All right? Again, in, in this Roman environment, they're not necessarily that concerned about people having different beliefs, different religions. Now, unrest is a big deal. And so, in order to get the government to turn on them, they charge, or they make up these fabric... Well, they, they're all right about that. They're declaring another king, King Jesus, all right? But, um, and so, that's how they get the government to turn on them. They're like, hey, these guys are going to try and start some kind of revolt here or something. And anytime there's a revolt, bad things happen, all right? You see that throughout history with Romans. Anytime there's any sort of unrest or anything, a lot of times it's dealt with with the iron fist there. So, um, so yeah, they, they make these charges against Jason. And, um, you know, there, there is another king, Jesus, all right? And so, yeah, the, then this is where the, the people get concerned. If they had brought forward, you know, like they believe different stuff than us, they probably wouldn't have cared. But... Um, since it has to do with unrest and any other king besides Caesar, that's a big deal. All right? <clears throat> and uh, so, even, and of course, they couldn't find Paul, Silas, or Timothy, so they, they are going to have to settle for Jason. All right? And uh, in verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason uh, and the rest, they let them go. All right, so we have, not only did the Jews, you know, get, start up a mob, but they turned the city against Paul and Silas. Um, and so that this could, and we'll see in just a second, that this could actually limit Paul and Silas's ability to come back to Thessalonica in the future. 
All right. Um, what we know from Thessalonica afterwards, we can gather some of this from the uh, first and second Thessalonians. Um, we know that the church in Thessalonica became a very important church in the region and worked to spread the gospel in Macedonia. So even though they, they ran Paul and Silas out of town, and you, know, and you see that in, starting in verse 10, that they have to leave town immediately, like right now, okay? Um, God was still able to, to use this, the, the believers that were there already to plant a church, to go out to the rest of Macedonia and really spread the gospel. And, and so we see uh, in 1 Thessalonians 7, of 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8, Paul writes, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, in Achaia, Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, and Achaia, Achaia, I'm not exactly sure it's that, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. All right? So of all the epistles Paul writes, okay, it seems like the Thessalonians really have it together the most, all right? Especially if you contrast it with something like Corinthians, right? The Corinthian church. Uh, so he's just commending them. They are out there. They are, you know, because of their, this is a strategic location. Remember I talked about there's a major trade routes to go through there. So you have lots of people coming and going through there. you got a major port. They're able to impact their entire region and all the other believers around there are writing to Paul about the church in Thessalonica because of what, how God is using them and how faithful they are. All right. So we do also know that Paul tried to come back to see them, but he said, writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that every time he just couldn't do it, he was being hindered by Satan. Um, and Paul writes to them in a lot of ways like they're the most Christ-like church. So we see how Paul was not deterred, how he was brave, how he had courage going straight into the synagogue as soon as he gets to Thessalonica, right? Teaching there for three weeks. We can tell that he had courage, he had bravery, all right? Where does this sort of courage come from? It comes from trusting in the Lord, all right? We know that, you know, we, we can, we, sometimes we get, we get so caught up in you know, I, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm so concerned. I'm afraid. All right. He, he trusts in the Lord. He trusts in God's sovereignty. All right. And we'll see later on. He doesn't stop. You know, he goes to the next town. He does the exact same thing. All right. So he has absolute courage. This is how you turn the world upside down. And that courage comes from his trust in the Lord. We also see that he has the right message. All right. He has the gospel. He knows how to defend it. He can use the scriptures. He can reason, all right? He can lay it out. He knows how to do that. That's how he, he turns the, the world upside down, is through the right message. People are going to hear it. They're going to believe it. They're true gospel, all right? They're going to be changed, all right? And that's where we have people believing, all right? You're bringing more people into the kingdom of God. This is also going to be more people going along with you, all right? When we talk about the 222 thing, we talk about, you know, this kind of you know, multiplication effect here, more believers to go out and teach the word and bring others into the kingdom. All right. Um, <clears throat> we saw how he was able to, you know, to use the scriptures um, and to reap a harvest. All right. We also see that Paul and Silas, they didn't back down. They weren't afraid of any sort of confrontation. They weren't afraid of the consequences, all right? They, in fact, they, they probably expected to have persecution, or, or they should have, should have anyway. And so they bring the gospel, all right? They understand that some people believe and some people want. And that's part of it also is, as we as believers bring the gospel to people, as we evangelize, all right, we, we have to be prepared for the results. Some people believe, some will not, Okay. And so we have to, in Paul also, knowing this, or obviously some of the Jews will believe, some won't. A lot of the Greeks did. But we have to be, understand also that the gospel can be offensive, all right? When you tell someone about, or 
When you start with, you know, you need God because of your sin. God is holy. God is just. Some people very comfortable in their sin, their lifestyle. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to have any part of it. And so even today, we will face that when we bring the gospel, when we are true to the word of God, that there will be uh, objections to it. It will be offensive. You know, people will find it offensive. What do you mean there's only one way to God? That's one of the most offensive things I've ever heard. You're so closed-minded, all right? Okay, so this is the sort of thing we're going to have to be prepared to deal with. Um, and then kind of lastly, just being able to, to be compelled um, to glorify God. Right? We see that no matter what, Paul was going to go out there and preach the gospel. It didn't matter what it cost him. It didn't matter if he was going to get stoned. It didn't matter if he was going to get beaten, spit at, whatever. It didn't matter. He was concerned not only for his brethren and, and bring the gospel to them, but he was also concerned for glorifying God. And every person who comes into the kingdom is one more person glorifying God. And so that's where we see, we'll see later on in Acts, the whole thing comes up again. He's outraged at the idolatry because he wants to see these people glorifying God. And uh, just to kind of close on this verse here, um, Paul summarizing kind of his whole ambition, his whole mission in Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And as we go out this next week, I mean, how can we, you know, just studying these passages it's so, it was convicting for me personally just to look at this and to see, man, I, you know, we, we can see here in Acts, we should see what the church should be like, how we should be acting, how we should be reaching our communities. And then we look at, well, where are we now in this church in America? Where are we? Are we just kind of sitting back, all right? There's a saying, you know, there's, there's those who make things happen, there's those who watch things happen, and there's those who wonder why things happen. Paul is definitely one of those people who made things happen, all right? And so as we go in, you know, to our lives, into our jobs, into our work, I just, you know, we're going to look at, you know, how are we going to reach the world? How are we going to proclaim the gospel? Are we going to be afraid? Are we going to be timid? Or are we going to be true, to honor God, to obey Him, to go out, to be without fear, to trust in His sovereignty, to proclaim the truth to our world? And so um, I just want to close us in prayer real quick and uh, just and to think about, you know, how we can, how, what is this, how does this reflect on us? How do we, how do we take this message? How do we apply it in our lives? How do we go out there and proclaim to the world that needs Christ?